Detroit and the world. Welcome to another episode of Authentically Detroit, broadcasting live from the Audio Wave Network Studios here on Detroit's Lower East Side, powered by the East Side Community Network and sponsored by none other than the Ford Foundation. I'm Orlando Bailey. And I'm Donna Giffens. Thank you for listening in and supporting our efforts to build a platform for authentic voices for real people on the East Side of Detroit. We want you to like and subscribe to our podcast on whatever platform you listen to us on. We will now be dropping a new EP. Yes, I said a new episode every week. Every week. Donna is trying to ruin my life. Yes. And later on in the show, you'll get to hear our interview with Bernadette Atuhine from the Coalition to End Unconstitutional Tax Foreclosures on the foreclosure crisis currently happening in the city of Detroit. Hey, Donna. Happy New Year again. Happy New Year, Orlando. So we're going weekly. We're going weekly. Oh, gosh. You know, I took a break, got relaxed, and over the holidays... I think the key is not to let you have have take any more breaks. (laughs) And I thought, how can we do no more work? (laughs) (laughs) Like, we did not do enough, and we did not end 2019 limping. But seriously... yeah. Um, I think that sharing information and communicating with our public about what's happening in Detroit is one of the more important things that we do on this show. Yeah. And we've gotten requests from people saying, I want to appear and recommendations from people saying that we should have these people appear. And if we're going to do justice to these topics. Yeah. We got to make time for it. Yeah. Can we take some time at the beginning of this year to just acknowledge all of the listeners and the support that we have gotten? Guys, we have to tell you that it has literally been overwhelming and that how this show has taken taken on pretty much a life of its own. It's become something that I don't think you or I expected it to become. No, it was just going to be a fun way to get news out there for people on the east side of Detroit. Yeah. um, Because we felt like people sometimes would rather hear the news than read it. Mm -hmm. And so newsletters are cool, but sometimes talking about issues in depth um, will give more people opportunity to access the information. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, so thank you all for the overwhelming support. You'll get to hear from us every week now, and I'm excited about and, it. And, and you know, um, I want to thank our listeners, but yeah. I also want to thank our guest. Yes, we every have had guest. the best guest, and we've been so lucky. We're only 14 episodes in. I know, right? Yeah. So I'm honored every time somebody says that they will sit down and talk to us and share the information they have. And um, unfortunately. Um, we had a guest who is leaving town until May. Yeah. And so we were unable to bring her on live, but we recorded her interview yesterday. Yeah. And she is amazing. And I'm just so proud of the work that she's doing um, to address some of the topics we'll be talking about today. Yeah. Why don't we get right on into it? It's time for Fresh Off the Press news that we are thinking about. This is our commentary on news items relevant to the city of Detroit. If you have news stories that you want us to cover, you can send them to authenticallydetroit at gmail.com or hit us up on our socials at authenticallydetroit. Donna, Fresh Off the Press. Detroit homeowners overtaxed $600 million. Thousands of Detroit residents are still in debt after skewed property assessments. This is an article from Christine McDonald and Mark Betancourt at the Detroit News and Reporting. Um, I have to say that local press is really doing a great job at investigative reporting. Proud to be a Detroiter. I have to agree with you there. Because at one point I was wondering what happened to the investigative reporting uh, reporters in this uh, city. It looks like, you know, 
I think that they have been. We're still here. I think they've been there, but they have been loosed, and they are now. (laughs) um, They are now investigating things and really given the freedom to speak on behalf of people in this community. Yeah, and I believe the importance of a free press to a democracy. And so, the more you know, the more you can make good decisions as citizens and. Um, hold our public officials, all of them accountable. Hold yeah. ourselves accountable. Yeah, what a compelling article with such egregious facts, Donna. You want to dig into some of oh my what this article revealed? It's it revealed some really painful stuff. Um, I think anybody who lives in Detroit has some memory of 2009 or anywhere in the U.S. Really, 2009 when we had the huge property tax fall. And um, when properties, I mean, property values just just plummeted all over the nation. Yeah. And especially in places like Detroit, property values, you know, were so low. Um, And on the one hand, it's a terrible thing. And on the other hand, when your properties are valued less, then you don't have to pay as much in taxes because your taxes are a reflection of the values of your property. In a perfect world. In a in a in a just world. In a just world, yeah. Not even perfect, yeah. just just, right? <laughs> and <laughs> and you part. know, when, we'll, we'll get into this later in the interview because what we find it, what they found is that of a hundred and seventy three thousand Detroit homes they reviewed, more than ninety two percent were overassessed between the years two thousand ten and two thousand sixteen. That is insane. They did not correct the home values until two thousand seventeen, and that they were overtaxed by an average of thirty eight hundred dollars. <laughs> Nearly ninety six thousand of those properties were taxed twice as much as they should have been, in at least one of those years. So when you look at $3,800 and you look at, I want to do some quick math here. So let me um, do something really quick. Um, But when you look at $3,800, that doesn't sound like so much money for people who make a lot of money. But if the average income in Detroit is about $26,000, $3,800 is 15% of the annual income income. and that is not take home income. So it's a huge burden to have to pay $3,800 more on your taxes than you already owed. Um, And many people just simply could not afford it. And so what ended up happening is a good number of those properties were eventually foreclosed on by the city mm-hmm. and um, the, the county the, you, uh, by the county. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. The city referred them to the county mm-hmm. for um, foreclosure. And these people have lost their homes and now somebody else owns their homes or the land bank owns their homes or their homes are gone. Or their homes are just gone. And these aren't the kind of mistakes that you can make and say, okay, my bad, mm-hmm. you know, um, so one of the challenges is the response to this has been underwhelming so far. It's it, <laughs> that that's a good way to put it. I have uh, more visceral words for the response, especially on part of government officials. This kick the can down the road, almost not really acknowledging the legitimacy of this huge injustice and crisis. Like, we don't hear government officials calling this a crisis either. Uh, Has, as you said, has been underwhelming and to me just downright offensive. Well, yeah, so um, (laughs) it's it's downright offensive and it's just um, nonsensical in some ways. Um, So I think that the mayor, I'm trying to find the quote, um, but the mayor is quoted saying something like um, the city 
of Detroit was going into bankruptcy. Well, this is a CFO. The mm-hmm. city of Detroit going into bankruptcy did a lot of things wrong and wronged a lot of people, said Masseron. Um, in addition to homeowners being overtaxed, retirees lost benefits and city services from emergency response to streetlights were lacking, he said. And forgiving overtaxed residents who still have debt would be unfair to homeowners who paid their bills. City and county officials mm-hmm. have um, have um, argued. At the end of the day, a number of residents over the last decade have paid their taxes. Masseron, the city CFO, said, over-assessed or not, they paid their taxes. And we need to be sensitive to the fact that those residents paid into the continued city operations. And the th- idea that he's concerned about is... That if you were to, and I, 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 there's another quote in this article, I think it's from the mayor, who says that if you um, erase their taxes, forgave those taxes, then existing taxpayers would have to be taxed more to accommodate this forgiveness of tax debt that people didn't owe. Mm. So to wipe the slate clean, you would burden people who did pay their taxes by doing something just to people who did not. Here's his quote. I found the quote. Thank you. So this is uh, Mayor Mike Duggan. Okay. And his quote is, I think the rates should have come down sooner, but I dealt with what we had and moved as quickly as we could, Duggan said. Folks had a process by which they could appeal it. Those years are closed. I don't know any lawful way to go back and say to all of the taxpayers of the city who did follow the process, we're going to raise your taxes to pay the taxes for people who didn't. I, you know, it to me, Donna, it's just poor messaging, and I don't think that should be the message it's, coming out of City Hall at all. That's that's that is asinine. So I'm going to throw out another concept, right? Yeah. So um, the city has decided to forego future taxes from a whole bunch of folks, from the Illiches for the um, LCA from Fiat Chrysler for a portion of their expansion, the city has decided to forgive a lot of future taxes. We actually have something in Detroit called, um, in, the, in the state of Michigan called, what is it, the the Brownfield, Transformational Brownfield Tax Credits, yeah. which allow developers to capture a portion of income tax and a portion of sales tax And the city has decided that this is a good use of future funds because it helps to stimulate the economy. What they're saying to citizens in Detroit is you're going to pay a higher share of your um, income or your of your income and also property taxes than these large corporations mm-hmm. because they add value they add that value. you don't. Yeah. And so, you know, if you ask a citizen, what would you rather do and what, you know, burden would you rather take on? The burden of justice, mm-hmm. which is paying people or, or um, forgiving people and compensating people for the injustice mm-hmm. of them paying twice as much as they owed in many instances and way more than they owed, $3,800 per year. And there are about 79,000 households that bore the brunt of it, where you had a single homeowner who, um, you know, was paying these overassessed fees the entire time frame. Would you ask a regular citizen in Detroit, let's do a poll. Mm -hmm. What would you rather do, pay for justice or pay for billionaires to come in here and make billions and have their taxes reduced? Me, I'm saying let's pay for justice. Yeah. 
And yeah. it's, it's the insensitivity to the economic harm and impact. It's not unfortunate. It is tragic. It is unjust. It is egregious that these things happened. And when the CFO mm. points out that retirees lost their pensions as an explanation that everybody bore some pain, it is it makes me sick <laughs> because we came up with a system that made everybody whole but retirees. And we've come up with a system that makes everybody whole but people who lost their homes. Now, um, we're going to find out later that not everybody's homes were overtaxed in Detroit mm -hmm. at the same level. Or in the county. In, the, in Detroit specifically, yeah. I'm saying, mm -hmm. that if you looked at the bottom quartile mm -hmm. of people in the city of Detroit, the vast majority of their homes were overtaxed. Mm -hmm. But if you looked at the more expensive homes, a small percentage of those homes were overtaxed and some of them were undertaxed. So we'll get it more into mm -hmm. that later. I'm just bringing that up because I think it's important for us to understand just how egregious this is. Yeah. And, you know, uh, there, there are numbers from last year that I, that was uh, in the article that I just want to bring up really quickly. It says of the more than 63,000 Detroit homes with the delinquent debt as of last fall, more than 90 percent were overtaxed by an average of at least $3,700 between 2010 and 2016, according to the calculations by the news. The debt owed on about 40,000 of those homes is less than the properties were overtaxed over those seven years. Yeah. That, that's horrible. And that's not even getting to the fact, which yeah. is the other issue that this article brings up and many people have noted, that many of these homeowners qualified for a full or partial tax exemption and should not have been paying any taxes at all. But the program that exempted their taxes were so underpublicized and so, so hard to complicated apply to yes. apply for. It is, though, if you jump through all of these hoops, then you will have the uh, benefit of a tax exemption. And, you know, again, and I don't want to keep on overstating this, but we have poor people jumping through more hoops sometimes, it seems, than we have wealthy people who want to do land in the city, who have attorneys and all these other people helping them do all the jumping and all they have to do is sit still and imagine. I think that this injustice is just so egregious and I keep using the word egregious. I'm trying to think of a better word to describe something gross. that's gross. Thank you. Gross. <laughs> it is. It is. Uh, it's, it's, it's really upsetting. It's and, upsetting. Um, and who knew that? And then um, who knew that Detroiters can appeal uh, their property tax assessments and what does that process looks like it, look like well, yeah. yeah who knew that they could appeal mm -hmm. um, what kind of notice is given and what kind of resources do they have to appeal um, the richer you are the more attorneys you can hire to make that appeal uh, most of the time when we see things like you can appeal this we feel um, you can appeal you know, the cutoff of your benefits, but most of the time people expect to lose those appeals. You mm -hmm. can uh, appeal a prison sentence. It's not as though people have confidence that an appeal will result in anything meaningful for them. Yeah. So more to come on this with our interview with Bernadette coming up a little later on in the show. Fresh off the press, about half of Detroit water shutoffs are still off. This is Nancy Kaffer at the Detroit Free Press who penned this op-ed. I want to read this excerpt and then it can serve as our uh, cue up for this discussion. As of October 31 of last year, 
According to its own internal report, the water department had turned off water to more than 25,000 accounts in 2019 and subsequently served, restored service to 13,721 of those customers. That means 11,297 accounts still lack water service and 10,145 of those accounts serve properties the department believes are occupied. Yeah. So we're, <laughs> is it safe to say that we're in a water crisis as well in this city? Well, I mean, we're in a justice crisis. We're in a quality mm. of life crisis and water is symbolic of something much greater than the actual access to water. Although, I mean, living without water is not possible. We need water to live. We need water for our hygiene. We need water for our public, um, health. public, public health. And so poor access to water takes us back to pre-civilization, right? Um, and it's, you know, how many times can I use the word disgusting today? But I think that if we imagine that the people who are living without water are people like us, human beings, mm -hmm. and we imagine the hardship that actual human beings face, um, this is really terrible. I, I grew up, I was you know, born in the 60s, came of age in the late 70s, early 80s, and I remember this concept of a social safety net that yeah. would catch people yeah. um, who were um, experiencing hard times so that they did not fall all the way out of the social safety net. And we have um, transformed conversations where we're no longer even treating the social safety net as an ideal. It's sort of like, oh, my bad. Well, you know, there's not enough money. How, and I, I feel really bad about it, but there's just not enough money. And so you read pub how public officials are responding to it. And it's as if they are powerless, mm -hmm. as if they don't understand that the role of government is to do more than thoughts and prayers. It is to solve problems <laughs> yeah. that people experience and especially problems that government causes. Mm -hmm. It's not as though Detroit's water rates are reasonable. Um, our water rates actually are reasonable. Our sewage our rates are sewage ridiculous. Sewage and drainage rates, yeah. We're so, there's some, some of the highest in the country. And so when you look at the fact that you have some of the poorest people in the country paying some of the highest water rates in the country, you automatically know some people are going to be without water. And then we have payment plans for people who are not considered poor enough to qualify for aid by our government. But a payment plan basically says now you have to pay what you owe plus what you didn't pay in the past. So if it was not affordable to you when you first got the bill, having your bill plus whatever multiplier they've added to it is not going to be affordable either. Um, and so then you have high rates of default, whether it is for um, water debt or tax debt when you have people enter into payment plans. Yeah. Rather than saying, let's figure let's out figure a, out a way system where people fix the can system. afford. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it's it's. I believe that there are smart people in government. We elect the, you know, smart people, the smart folks, the, the folks who have critical thinking skills, the folks who have experience and can solve these kinds of issues. L let's do it. Let's do it. Well, I think that we do. I think that one of the things we have to acknowledge is that the public agenda has been distorted for some time. 
there's been this demonization of poor people and people without and this desire to help people lift themselves up out of poverty as though that's how poverty works. And as if poverty is a consequence of personal failings and not a consequence of an unfair economic structural economic system that needs to have poor people in order for people well to survive because you know you need to be able to underpay people Mm -hmm. in order to get a hamburger for this price Mm -hmm. or you need to underpay people in order for jeff bezos to add to his and not pay taxes and not pay taxes if jeff bezos had to share his wealth he would still be rich but he could not be an ultra billionaire, an ultra rich person. He would not be the richest man in the world. And we actually have a system where there are many, many voters who believe it's important to let him make as much money as possible and that any constraints on his wealth is an unfair wealth redistribution. So since the Reagan revolution in the 1980, when he was elected to office, I like your language. Well, (laughs) as they call it, since the Reagan Revolution, (laughs) what has happened is not wealth distribution where rich people are being asked to pay more. It's been a redistribution redistribution where poor Poor people people. are asked to pay more. All day. When you pay a higher percentage of your income for water, when you pay a higher percentage of your income for taxes, when you actually have higher income taxes than billionaires... And the rationale is that the billionaires have earned the right not to have to contribute. You're living in an unjust system. Mm -hmm. And what ends up happening is at municipal levels, city governments are trying to figure out how to pay bills and still maintain this, um, you know, trickle down economy that we now exist in where nothing really trickles down everything trickles up i mean didn't we learn that well with george bush well you know i think that was um ronald reagan and reagan yeah who talked about the trickle down theory and you know i think somebody called it voodoo economics (laughs) (laughs) i don't remember exactly who that was but it's still voodoo but i think that when we elect people to office and i think that we really have to pay attention not just to who you elect to office but also what we encourage them to run on and how we hold them accountable that's right when they run for office and we say what we want you to do is stimulate the economy and they stimulate the economy we say good job look um, economic growth is up and stock market is up and housing prices are increasing and all of these things that you know are sort of markers of economic progress for people with money Mm -hmm. and we aren't saying that We need you to solve the problems of poverty and hunger and homelessness and injustice inside of our communities. And public health. What you measure is what you work towards. We're told that all of the time, right? Yeah. Um, In in a job evaluation, what you measure is what you work for. So, yeah, nonprofit world, we're always told this. We have metrics, and (laughs) metrics always, you're expected to do. (laughs) You got input, output, Uh uh, deliverable. Make a dollar out of 25 cents, right? (laughs) We're changing the world over here. (laughs) With 25 cents. (laughs) (laughs) because you know don't don't try to get paid because i have are you volunteering i thought you were doing this because of passion and mission (laughs) people like us we want to get paid that's why we're not doing nonprofit work right and you know so you have an unstable sector so often because you can't afford to keep people or people cannot afford to work in our sector often enough Mm -hmm. but you know the reality is what you measure is what you accomplish if Detroit wants different results, then we have to have a different measuring stick and we need to let every elected official know, here's how I'm going to measure you. I love it. 
I won't demonize you because, you know, if you have the same system and you put good people in the same system, it's only going to be a little bit better. We got to change our systems. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. Well said. Well, this wraps up our fresh off the press segment. If you have any stories and news items that you would like us to cover, please hit us up on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Authentically Detroit. Or you can send us an email at AuthenticallyDetroit.com. In our discussion this week, we're tackling the foreclosure crisis with Bernadette Antahune from the Coalition to End Unconstitutional Tax Foreclosures. And she's also a law professor at Chicago Kent College of Law. Our interview was pre-recorded, and the audio will differ from what you hear now. But we encourage you to listen to the full interview. Here we go. All right, everybody. So we have a very special guest with us in the house tonight. We have Bernadette Atuahene, and she is here to talk about uh, some of the work that she's doing at uh, Wayne State University and in Chicago as a professor, as a writer and researcher. We're so happy to have her. Her and Donna are... And, 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 and her coalition to end illegal tax foreclosures, yeah. which has to be... Um, one of the most timely um, areas of work you can do in the city right now um, because the tax foreclosure process has actually reshaped the landscape of Detroit yes. and in many ways the economy. And so your research and your just scholarship in the area is really exciting. I mean, I hate to say that around something as devastating as loss of a home, right. but I'm excited by your scholarship and your knowledge and command of the issues. Um, can you give us a start before we get... Um, into the subject matter of tax foreclosures. How did you get started in this work and how did you end up in Detroit? Excellent, so before I start, I just wanna thank you both for inviting me on your wonderful show. Uh, I've been following you both in your work at ECN for some time now. Oh wow, so, so, you've been followed. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. How did I get started? So all my work has to do with land stolen from people of the African diaspora. So my first book project was in South Africa, and I looked at land stolen from, uh, from native people there. But that project was uncomfortable for me in many ways because it looked at black people as the victims they were being stolen from. And so I wanted my next project to be where black people were doing the stealing. Uh, they were taking mm. the land. And so uh, I came to Detroit to study the squatting phenomenon where people yeah. were squatting in all of these abandoned, empty uh, buildings. And the last big squatting phenomenon in the U.S. was on the Lower East Side of New York, but what's happening here in Detroit far outpaces that. And in the law, there are two kinds of squatters. One is um, what mo most normal people think of a squatter, we call a takeover, right? Someone who comes into a property with no prior legal relationship to that property. Yeah. But there's a second category of squatter in the law that we call a holdover. And that's somebody who was either, you know, they, they were the owner, got foreclosed upon, and, 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 uh, and got, uh, so they're still there, but they no longer have legal title. So that's called a holdover. And I had to include both in my sample, uh, in, in my interview sample. So when I started interviewing the holdovers, I was like, what in the world is going on? All of these people are former owners of their home and got kicked out for not paying their property taxes. Hmm. I started reading up, reading up, and there had been a lot of work by economists at Michigan State and urban planners at University of Michigan on assessment inequity. 
but nobody had made the link to the Michigan State Constitution, which says no property can be assessed at more than 50% of its market value. Right. And so that's me and my co-author, Tim Hodge, were the first ones to write the piece about talking about this is not only inequitable, it's actually straight up illegal. And not only illegal, it's unconstitutional. It, it violates the, the highest law of this land, of this state, which is the Michigan State Constitution. And the last thing I'll say is the the... the the thing is, most state constitutions, to the extent they mention assessments at all, they say things like it has to be fair, uniform, equal, all nebulous standards up to a judge to determine. Michigan has a ratio, cannot be more than 50% of the property's market value, which means people like me can come in and run the numbers and determine legality, and that's exactly what we did. And our findings were astonishing. We found that between, we, our, our study looked at between 2009 and 2015, and we found in each of those seven years, anywhere between 55 and 85% of properties were being assessed in violation of the Michigan State Constitution. And then we broke up that data into what we call five quintiles, just, uh, we broke it up, and we find basically in quintile one and two, meaning the lowest valued homes, 95% or more of those homes were being assessed in violation of the Michigan State Constitution. And when you got to quintile five, meaning the highest valued homes, only about 18% were being wow. assessed in violation wow. of the Michigan State Constitution. Why? Because rich people have lawyers they have, yes. and they can they protest resources. resources and they can protest the taxes. And when you protest in Detroit, you win. You know, so that takes me back to an earlier conversation we had when you and I first met and really connected, right? Mm -hmm. And um, I was talking about this whole concept of customers of government. I love and that, when yeah. you are a customer of government, that means that government policies and programs are designed with you in mind. Yes. It's like if you're the customer of a car dealership or if you're the customer of a restaurant, they're designing things for your customer experience. And then you have people who are subjects and these might be the people who um, receive food from, from Forgotten Harvest, right? They're the ones who, you didn't design the meal for them, but they get it because um, it's, it's a, you know, somebody else throws it away or somebody else doesn't want it. And it becomes this, I don't know, um, but, but they, you have no rights as a, 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 a subject in our government. And it seems to me as though people at that bottom, those bottom quintiles, are subjects in our government. They have the responsibility for paying taxes, but they are not even afforded the constitutional rights of citizens in this country. Is that true? I think that's a per. I love, first of all, when you first told me about that breakdown, I think that is just uh, <laughs> uh, an excellent analytical tool, right? You have your uh, subjects your citizens and your customers. So I just thought that was a fascinating framework that I, I, I really thought was right on point. And I think that's exactly right. And to go one step further, you know, the uh, customers are the people in the high value homes. Because again, not only are 18% of those people um, not subject, only 18% are subject to unconstitutional tax assessments, the majority of those people are actually being under assessed. Mm. They're being assessed way below, not even above. Only 18% are being assessed above, but the vast majority are being assessed below. The, and so those are true customers. That's the right. system is designed for them. And just as you said, the lowest value ones, the, again, 95%, my God. 
you know, almost all of them are being assessed illegally for crying yeah. out loud, right? And, yeah. and, and when you think about that, and we're going to take that in a whole lot of different directions, I mean, it's really crazy, it's really horrible, it's really unjust. But we live also in a nation that treats wealth as if it is akin to morality. Mm. That wealthy people are good and they're doing the right things in America and poor people have somehow gotten off the right path. Right. And there's this or even even more than that, wealthy people are hard working and poor people are lazy. When we know poor people are the actually the most hardest, hardest, working. hardest working people yeah. we know. Right. Yeah. Working two, three jobs. Yeah. And Make doing the hardest labor within any kind of corporate setting, right? When say, they say some people are makers and some people are takers and the makers are the people who own the automobile companies and the takers are the people who work for them. I'm thinking, who's really making the car? Who's making your food? Who is making your bed? I mean, the makers are the people who are doing the heavy lifting and but we treat them as if they're immoral. And I think that we do that. And, you know, I mean, this nation has a long history of that, right? Um, this nation enslaved us and then said that we didn't have the moral character or somehow didn't have some, you know, constructs of humanity where we could be treated as equal. Mm -hmm. And I see that as a carryover because it's okay to punish poverty. A holdover. A holdover, that's right. <laughs> I, it's okay to punish poverty because that will get poor people from being poor. Maybe they will wake up and not be poor anymore. And it's a fiction. It's a moral disaster. Mm -hmm. And um, so when you say 95% of the lower quintile, I want to understand. I'm a lifelong Detroiter, by the way. Welcome to Detroit. Thank you. Uh, but when you say 95%, that's a terrible number. How many houses is that? How many people were impacted by this? Right. So we know over 100,000 households uh, have been foreclosed upon, subject to property tax foreclosure. Um, and so when we talk about that's house, like actual physical houses, and you know there's multiple people in each house, yeah, houses. so you can do the math on that. So we have in Detroit, we have one in four properties has been subject to property tax foreclosure. We haven't seen this number of property tax foreclosures in American history since the Great Depression. Right. right. And so when we really ask ourselves what's going on and then we really start lifting the layers and seeing this illegality, we, can, we, 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 we know what's going on. But the real question in connection to your point about um, uh, the morality of poverty is that how in the world was this allowed to go on for so long? That's the real question. Well, it's allowed to go on for so long because of exactly what you're talking about. Because instead of when I, so part of my work, I'm here in Detroit to do what we call ethnography. So oh, I've actually, yeah. I live here on the east side. I've been living here and for three years in a, on purpose in a community that was been hard hit by the property tax foreclosure crisis so I can get to understand what's actually happening. So that's what I'm, that's the kind of research I do and that's what I'm doing here in Detroit. And um, one of, I've interviewed every single, at this point, government official in charge of property tax administration. And the stories I hear are very consistent. When you ask what's going on you know, with property tax, uh, Dave Shemansky, the former treasurer, told yeah. me, you know what, Prof? When P the, he told me what's going on is when people decided to, between uh, paying their taxes and buying a purse, unfortunately, they decided to buy the purse. Vicki Kovari 
<laughs> that is infuriating. Oh wow! It, and he said this. Not only did he say it to me in an interview, but he also he said it on at, he, on the, at the Kobo Center. He said it to you know Kobo Center. Everybody comes. Who's who? Hundreds of people come. He was on a dais, elevated, and he and he looking down on a crowd of mostly black people, saying he said this to them at that meeting. So he so he's on record as saying this multiple times. When I asked Vicky Kovari what was happening back when she was the mayor's uh, department, head of the department of neighborhoods, you got it. yeah, uh, she said people bought houses they couldn't afford. You know, I can go on and on with the you know what, what's going on. People aren't paying their taxes. It's always about a failure of personal responsibility. And I need you to understand this. This is a what we call a discursive move, right? Mm-hmm. So in as much as they are saying the problem is this individual, their failure of personal responsibility, that's a strategic move that prevents you from, from looking at the real problem, which yeah. is the structural inequality, the system. Yes. this unconstitutional tax assessments. Yeah. So in as much as they are telling you it is a failure of personal responsibility, they are di- diverting our gaze from where it really needs to be, which is on the systemic right. issues. To the penalization it's, 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 of poor it's, folks. It's strategic. Yeah. It is. It's strategic, and it's also how people have been discounting injustice in this nation for forever. You got it. Okay? It's not just property this tax. Is not, this is, yes, this is this not narrative new. is all the way through. This is yes. true whether it is us talking about illegal tax foreclosures, right, or unconstitutional tax foreclosures, which is a better word in some ways, right? But... It's also true when just talking about minimum wages, when also talking about housing crisis. When the government is breaking the law or when the government is actually filing and enforcing an unjust law, there's always this move to point to the people and not to accept the fact that the system is broken. This system is broken, it's been broken, and it's going to be broken until we make the will and the needs of people of this nation, and certainly people in the city of Detroit, the center of our policy making and the center of our action. Well, you know, Dan, I heard you make the point before about the system actually working the way it was designed to work toward the benefit of those in power and in privilege. Right. You know what I mean? And right. it, when, when we think about how cyclical this is, even into 2020 and these holdovers, the system is working exactly the way it was designed to work. How do we disrupt and break the system is my question. And so I want to say, so I don't know about if, if this. I, so I think it's about who's in control of the system. So there's mm. two things. I, I, it's hard for me to to see this level of property tax foreclosure happening under Harold Washington, for instance, mm. and, and 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 nothing happened. You know, nothing being <laughs> done about it. And so that's number Call me one. Young. So, and Cole, well, we, sorry. We, Who did I had, say? You said Harold Washington. Oh, honey, I'm in, I, I am in I Chicago. Know, I, know. <laughs> I know. I know. That's tomorrow, yeah. Bernadette. Right. You're still here in Detroit. <laughs> and you know, we say Coleman around here. Huh? I'm in Detroit. We imagine the ghost of Coleman Young <laughs> talking about MFs and cussing everywhere in between. Yes. Yes. You are so right. Yes. This could never happen yes. under the administration. And I don't believe and let me, yeah. I remember when this law was written. I was here. And the reality is at that time people were looking at these what they call I've heard people use a concept, the zombie properties. No owner around, and it's really, 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 really hard to take possession of a vacant property where the owner just exits stage left. And so the expedited tax foreclosure law 
was supposed to um, to crack down on those types of property owners. Mm. The LLCs that you know are formed, and what yeah. ended up happening is they designed a system that the private companies and slumlords have found a way around, and the only people it's holding accountable are the citizens who are low income in this community for the most part. And so I don't believe it was formed to have this impact. I believe it was formed to have a different impact. But going back to your point, when you have something that is this broken and damages this many people, regardless of your original intent, you stop and you change the policy. But what I need, let's stop here, and we need to realize one other thing, mm -hmm. that this problem of property tax abuse is not just happening in Detroit. Right. I mentioned Harold Washington on purpose because it's actually also happening in Chicago. There was a Pulitzer Prize-nominated series called The Tax Divide in the Chicago Tribune that shows in the city of Chicago, black and brown people are being taxed, overtaxed through property tax. Only difference in Chicago is they're not losing their homes through tax foreclosure. Um, my colleague Christopher Berry at the University of Chicago has recently completed a national study and is finding this as a national trend uh, about this kind of property tax abuse happening everywhere. And guess who are the two states that are the worst offenders? Michigan and Illinois? Michigan and Alabama. When you're in the same category as Alabama, you know you're in trouble. Wow. <laughs> wow. Oh, my goodness. Michigan and Alabama. For shame. <laughs> So, but this is happening nationally. I think that that's an important point because, um, and this is important because property taxes are so complicated. And so it's, it's, it's easier, right, to hide this injustice within the complexity. And so housing advocates really need to step up in terms of fighting these property tax abuses that are happening nationally, it just hasn't come on the scene as a big issue. It's come on in Detroit because, uh, radar in Detroit, because people are losing their homes. It came in Chicago because of some research that was done there, but it really is a national problem and, and activists nationwide really need to pick up this, uh, this banner and really start uh, looking into these property tax abuses that are happening. Well, I think that the property taxes exist in a universe of um, tax cuts for wealthy people. And so when your whole entire system and when your politics of this nation, whether it's Democrats or Republicans, have all been centered around middle class tax cuts and business tax cuts, somebody's gotta pay Somebody's gotta pay. You, do, you know, most municipalities in the state of Michigan cannot pay their bills right now. Most of us are starved for resources because of all of the taxes that have taken place over a series of years on a federal and state and even a local level because even Detroit's taxes were decreased. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, the state of Michigan passed the Headley Amendment and the Headley Amendment makes it impossible for a municipality to increase its taxes or develop new taxes without state permission. And states, um, the, and, and so the, the city has a responsibility in many ways to go to the state and say, look, we need to do something different here. Yeah. But rather than going to the state and saying, look, we need to do something different here, here's the perspective. If we change increased taxes in anywhere else in Detroit, we're gonna drive out our customers and we're gonna keep our customers from investing in the city of Detroit. So we can't do that. The only thing that we can afford to do is to overtax people who are already here 
and then blame them for not being able to pay. <laughs> and those aren't the people who finance our campaigns. Those aren't the people, for the most part, who we see as reliable voters. And so you have a whole throwaway group of people. And I think the only way to um, push back against these narratives and against this system is to demand a seat at the table, is to organize our community and make demands on the people who run for office and occupy various offices uh, from the state to the local level. Absolutely, because at the federal level, let's look at, let's look at how, you know, why do these states need to behave so predatory? Look at federal funding. Federal funding has been cut. CDBG mm -hmm. block grants exactly. over the last 25 years have decreased yes. post-Reagan by 70% when you adjust for inflation. Mm -hmm. So not only have we uh, cities been uh, subjected to less federal funding, but in Michigan, it's less state funding. You know, when, when uh, Snyder came in, he put in the EVIP and reduced the uh, revenue sharing, yeah. reduced revenue sharing payments drastically. So cities are in a position where they're, you know, as Donna uh, correctly pointed out, experiencing tax cuts, but then they're also receiving withdrawal of funding from both the federal and the state levels. My God, they are trying to pay the bills and operate the state apparatus with an ever dry, drying well. Right. And so we, we got to really understand the position. These bureaucrats are behaving in a, in a predatory, it's a predatory system. Right. But right. the system is not working, not necessarily because it wasn't designed to work. It's not working because there's not enough inputs yeah. in it. Well, right. There's not enough funding. There's not enough uh, to really operate the system the way it should operate. But it goes back to intentionality, right? Um, our government was very intentional about cutting all these taxes. We had so many people running for office saying, this is what I'm running on. So you have some intentionality there. When is the last time you've had a candidate run on the, the platform, I'm going to reinvest in our cities and, and, and reinvest in poor people in our communities? We don't run on that. That's not something that we do. We don't run on equal justice for poor people. We run on the middle class. We run on the middle class. And last I heard, middle, the middle class, class votes. people are making $400,000 a year. So everybody between <laughs> and forty and $400,000 is considered middle class. <laughs> and I think that's a pretty broad spectrum, but I'm pretty sure that we're designing policy for people at the $400,000 level and not people at the $40,000 level. And so we have this broken government. And I think that um, the it's not just a perception, but it's a reality. I listen to people right now say, well, you know, if you talk about presidential politics, which, you know, People will say that Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren are running on wealth distribution, redistribution, mm -hmm. and that is unjust. They're saying this is how much that money common, I can make, and that's not fair for them. Somebody who is making sixty, seventy thousand dollars a year is really, really, really furious about the possibility of wealth redistribution. When you have a tax cut and you're cutting the wealthiest people in America, isn't that wealth redistribution? from the middle to the top, from the bottom, you know what I mean? And so it's like, at some level, we have to relinquish these battles. Mm -hmm. And that's why I love the concept of the coalition against unconstitutional tax foreclosures. You've relinquished the fight. That's right. It's so important though. That's I just right. wanted to add that uh, I think that Detroit is researched a lot. <laughs> In fact, I think we are over-researched and we rarely see interventions 
that come out of the research. We identify all of these problems and we identify all of these pain points and it's almost always beholden to the educational institution that is researching these subjects, right? But you actually did something with this research. Can you talk a little bit about? Yeah, you're absolutely right. That is a, a pervasive problem with the academy is mm -hmm. that number one, I, you know, I think that's just a pervasive because the, the way the academy is set up, you actually, everything I'm doing in Detroit, all this activism based on the research, I get zero credit for. I'm literally working two full-time jobs. I'm not getting less teaching responsibility. I'm not getting less uh, service responsibilities. Everything I'm doing in Detroit, I do. And then I have to do my other full-time job. So that's why most people in the academy don't do this because mm -hmm. we're not rewarded for it. It's, it, it, it's uncompensated and, 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 turn, and the academy turns a blind eye to it. So mm -hmm. there's a systemic reason why you don't see more professors engaging in this kind of work, number okay. one. But number two, I think also me as an individual, there's no way because my whole purpose and my kind of what God put me on this earth to do is about, uh, you know, looking into issues of, of land stolen from people of the African diaspora. That's what I do. And before I went to law school, before I became a professor, I was a community organizer in South Central Los Angeles. And so I have a certain skill set yeah. that allows me to do interventions and, and community work at a, at a different level than many of my colleagues who are never community organizers or, you know, are just academics. Yeah. So I think there's a lot, there's a lot, lot of levels going on there. But I do think that the university needs to change mm -hmm. in terms of... Um, Again, another problem you see is uh, with research in Detroit is people coming to Detroit and asking people questions. No, before you start asking questions, you ask the people what questions, the, the research questions need to be generated by the organizations doing the work in Detroit, by the people in Detroit, yes. right? Instead of the research questions being generated in the ivory yeah. tower, and then they come to Detroit to ask people about X, Y, or Z. Right. It, it, it's, 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 it's backwards, Yes. right? The, the, the research questions need to come from the ECNs of Detroit, from the, right, from the various organs. What, what are the research questions you guys need answered to do your work better? That's the kind of intervention the university needs to have in Detroit, but it, that's just well, not how it works. The reality is that um, Wayne State University does not have the resources to do that work. You have other um, universities like UCLA has um, a center, I can't remember the name of the center they have. Um, oh, honey, Wayne has a lot center. of resources. It's they, about they, how they, you use they, them. Well, that's, okay, let me put it like that's this. It. They don't make the resources available like a UCLA or like the University of Michigan, although the University of Michigan is not as aggressive as um, Ohio State University. Don't tell anybody I said that. Um, You're all right. Well, okay, but it's true. Ohio State University has, I can't remember the name of the center they have that um, John Powell used to run. Right. That um, the, what is, uh, Michelle Alexander was running that center before she left, um, which focused on um, race and inequality. You have to have intentionality around raising the resources. Foundations and corporations can't put money in the study so that you don't have to do a thousand jobs to get it done. But unfortunately, um, I don't really see a civil rights center in the state of Michigan at U of M or at Michigan State that's really just focusing on those issues that's well-resourced as well. Do you see that here? Well, University of Michigan, they do have the poverty solutions. Um, center, so that's 
But how many faculty are working in Poverty Solutions and what kind of studies are being, we partner with Poverty Solutions and I think they're great. But when I look at the amount of resources that go into some other centers where they're producing independent research, um, I just think that there can be. Or I mean, the point is the University of Michigan is such a big university. The fact that the only one I can name that's doing any real work in the community as Poverty Solutions is the problem. The problem is not with Poverty Solutions. They're doing what they're supposed to do. I, but they should not be the only that's what I mean. main institution in this very well-resourced university that's, doing this kind of that's work. That's kind of what I mean. You know, yeah. I, I looked some time ago. I graduated from U of M, so I feel like I um, can criticize. But there <laughs> is no PhD program on African and African-American studies at the University of Michigan. Imagine that. You have PhD programs in Chinese studies. You have PhD programs in all different types of ethnic studies. But we're not even worthy of study. And I think that in addition to the financial disparities that you're talking about, you're also talking about race disparities when you start talking about these tax foreclosure losses, aren't you? I mean, you can't talk about it in Detroit without mentioning race. I tend to agree with you more. So one of the... um, studies that is so I always say if you do work in Detroit and you don't look at race explicitly you're doing everybody a disservice that's right the second study I did was focus explicitly on race and the question in that study was are the because you know so Michigan I'm sorry Wayne County I believe has 43 43 municipalities right Uh, and of those 43 municipalities it's 30 of them are 70% or more white and three of them are 70% or more black, Detroit, Inkster, and Highland Park. And so my question in the second research project was, are the majority African-American cities in Wayne County being unconstitutionally assessed and foreclosed on at the same rate as the majority white cities in Wayne County? And the, uh, you know, the uh, answer was, of course, the majority African-American cities are being subjected to illegal assessments and foreclosure at a much higher rate than the majority white city. So it is absolutely a racial question and, 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 and you have to really understand what's going on in Detroit with the property tax foreclosure through this racialized city-county divide. That's historically, that is a historic city-county divide, right? And at the end of the day, when you ask, you know, I always say, when you want to find out what's happening in your life, something's going wrong in your life, I don't care if it's a relationship or uh, what bit, whatever, what business, whatever, you need to follow the money. Wherever the right. That's right. And it's going to tell, that's going to tell you, that's going to, you're going to get to the core of it when you follow the money. Okay, I don't care what kind of relationship it is, you, go, you need to follow the money. And when you follow the money in Detroit with the property tax foreclosure crisis, what you find is that Detroit is not benefiting. The city of Detroit itself is not benefiting from this property tax foreclosure crisis. It is being ravished, right? right? Uh, less tax collection, blight. And, I mean, you can go on and on. The city of Detroit is not financially benefiting. So who is financially benefiting? The answer is Wayne County. County. People do not realize that Wayne County staved off bankruptcy and emergency management off the backs of delinquent taxes and foreclosures in the city of Detroit. And we need to understand that dynamic within the larger historical dynamic of the white county and the black city. Of that racialized city-county divide is being resurrected, right? This is, this is in this instance of 
of the property tax foreclosure crisis. So the only entity that is benefiting is Wayne County and the investors that are buying from the tax foreclosure and, option. So when we talk about Wayne County, though, and we talk about who's benefiting, a lot of times people want to attach it to a certain person and a certain office, and there's this thinking that if we can just elect the right person, this will stop. Now, I agree with you. If Coleman Young were mayor, Detroit would not be a lot, Detroit is not being exploited like this. But it seems like there's some structural reasons and some, some structural fixes that have to be in place to stop this. Can you talk about that a little bit? Absolutely. I, you know, some of the structural fixes is number one, if we want a real structural fix, I think we need to look at uh, a state like Florida where they do not even charge property taxes until the property is of a certain value. I think the value might be like 40,000, 30,000. I'm not sure what the number is, but any property, let's just say for now, under 40,000 doesn't even get charged property taxes. Why is that brilliant? Because property taxes are so complicated that you can only make sure they're correct if you can hire a lawyer. And so you really should leave it to the population, the middle class, upper class population who can hire a lawyer to deal with property taxes. The poorest of the poor, it doesn't make sense for them to be filing poverty tax exemptions every year, et cetera, et cetera. And you're not making much off of them anyways, right? And so one structural solution is this kind of model about not even taxing the lower value properties at all. Yeah. That, that, that's my kind of, if I had a big one to put on the table to really solve a lot of it, it would be that. Well, can I, I, I want to ask you uh, a question around, uh, you, you said, you said something earlier that kind of struck me that Detroit isn't really benefiting from collecting, uh, these unconstitutional, uh, collecting on these taxes on these illegally assessed homes. But one of the trends that I'm seeing currently is officials sort of just kicking this can down the road say and passing off responsibility well you know it was this administration or we didn't have staff the detroit news just released an investigation letting us know that the county has taken what 600 million dollars in over assessed properties in wayne county uh, especially being exacerbated in the city of detroit even when you spoke about vicky Kovari and some other officials just kind of turning uh, this camera to the citizen. Why does it seem like no one wants to take responsibility for this? Yeah, it's a, it's a, and that's exactly right. It's a, it's the pointing of the fingers. So yeah. you go, um, you know, you go to when you're you go to Wayne County, you go to Eric Sabree at the Wayne County, and he says, "Well, it's the D D Detroit's fault. They're in charge of assessments, and if the assessments are illegal, it's Detroit's fault." That's actually true. Detroit is in charge of yeah. assessments, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, and then you go to Detroit, they're like, oh, we want to stop the foreclosures, but that's Eric, that's the county. Yeah. Well, that's actually true. That's true. That, you know, if you want to stop foreclosure, it is the county that has the power to stop the foreclosures and only the county that has the power to stop foreclosures. So they're busy pointing fingers at each other when in fact, if they, if they acknowledge they both together have the power to stop this, right? But instead we have fingers being pointed. You're, you're, it's you, your responsibility when they really each have different roles and need to work together to put a stop what? to this madness. I have a question. If Detroit wanted to stop foreclosures, 
couldn't Detroit exercise the right of first refusal and pull all and those properties homes. out of the auction? Auction, yeah. And they have been, but all of them. I mean, not most of them. Right. I mean, isn't that um, within Detroit's powers? As it's Yes, so there's the... Uh, City of Detroit can exercise the right of first refusal. Wayne County, Wayne County, County Land Bank can exercise the right. Any go- all of these government entities we're talking about right. can pull these houses out of foreclosure. But I, I guess I'm making the point that when Detroit says they want to stop foreclosures, they could. Right. That's right. They could. Just like if and Wayne County wanted to stop they it, they could. could. Everybody right. could stop it. That's right. And the explanation I've heard is, well, we don't want to stop this because we took other people's homes and it wouldn't be fair to the other people to, who lost their homes for new people not to lose their homes or something it's like that. It's asinine. It's it just ridiculous. And it's, I, I think the administration, they've been saying that over and over and they need to be embarrassed. It's a part of their messaging. They need to be embarrassed. That's an embarrassing, that's, that's a ridiculous, horrible. embarrassing statement. It's horrible. And they need to be embarrassed by that statement. It's and it is, their, it is what each and every one of them are saying. It's okay. And it's so asinine. It, they, they need to really rethink that. It's, an, it's embarrassing. And they need to be embarrassed. Right. I mean, it's, it's foolish. It's foolish. When something bad, don't come up with a cure for cancer because my, my, my cousin died cousin already. Died so many people died, died already. It wouldn't be fair so to save you because they already died. And it's so ridiculous. It's, it's ridiculous. Like, it's embarrassing. It's, it's just, and it's, it's immoral. You do what you can. But I think that that goes to the whole issue of intentionality, right? When you act with intention to solve a problem, that problem is something that you're trying to address then you're not trying to figure out who to blame. You're trying to figure out who can help you solve that problem. When what you're trying to do is absolve yourself of any kind of responsibility or accountability, you point fingers. I think that, um, again, if we do a good enough work organizing people at the community level and really making demands on our government, our government will work better for us. Mm -hmm. I really think that they count on our silence. They count on our passivity. If 100,000 Households lost their homes, and there's two to three people inside of those households. And let's just say there's on average two adults inside of those households. And I don't know if that's a good average or not, but let's just say there's two adults per hundred thousand households. That's two hundred thousand people who can show up at the polls and vote. There are also people who are less likely to vote in many instances, and also some people have just voted with their feet and they've left the city and they're no longer part of what's happening here. But it feels like if there's an understanding that the people who are losing the most are holding you as accountable, as the people who are losing the least, your government becomes more balanced. Do you agree with that? Yeah, yeah. You know, at the end of the day, um, you know, we need to... I think that's right. I think at the poll is where a lot of this gets handled. But I mean, when you think about, when you look at the poll of the last mayoral race, you know, what choice did Detroiters have at that last mayoral race, well, right? It was, it was Duggan, and then the number one kind of plan B was uh, Coleman Young Jr. He was no choice, in my opinion. Right. So, but you're what not choice just talking did Detroiters about have? polls, right? Uh, we watched something really interesting happen in November of last year when the mayor wanted to um, get this council to put a blight bond on the ballot in March. Right. 
And it wasn't that beautiful how and community rose community up and put a stop to that. And and said no That's and it. really changed city council votes, right? right? And so you had the majority of council people voting no when everybody thought that had been won. So I think that a lot of times we think after we lose an election or win an election, our job is done. Um, I remember I saw this um, quote from Angela Davis and she was talking about when President Obama was elected president. He, she said, I love him. He's my brother. I support him. I'm really excited. On November, first Tuesday in November, I'm voting for him. And the next day, I'm hitting the streets and I'm organizing to hold him accountable for the agenda that I support. And I think that that's how we have to be with our elected officials, whether they are benign, whether they love us, whether we trust them, whether we don't. Elected officials tend to respond to the people who are exercising their democratic privileges on an everyday basis. Because if you're a lobbyist, you don't stop on election day. You're putting pressure every, every day. day. So that's a nice segue to talk about the work of the coalition. Yeah, so as you said, yeah, the, co- the, uh, the coalition to end unconstitutional tax foreclosures. And we actually just voted uh, on Thursday at our last meeting. We changed our name uh, because we don't want to say what we're against. We want to say what we're for. Oh. So, so are we, we breaking news on so Authentic Detroit? News, okay. Breaking news. <laughs> So we changed our name for the Coalition to End Unconstitutional Tax Foreclosures to the Coalition for Property Tax Justice. Love, Love it. it. We gotta say what we're Two for. Two snaps up. That's it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> and we changed our our logo from a house with two chains in front of it to a house that's in the form of a key to give access. That's All right. Cool. Yes. Come so through. Yes. I love it. Let me uh, before you go on with that, we have a blight advisory task force with the Lower East Side Action Plan of Detroit, which East Side Community Network supports. And we just are having those exact same conversations. Should it be a blight advisory task force or should we have a positive name to describe the vision that we are all working towards? Now tell us about the work of this coalition. Excellent. So we have three goals. The whole coalition is uh, structured around three goals and we promise we have 12 different grassroots organizations that are currently members. And uh, where the first goal is to stop these unconstitutional tax assessments. That's our first goal. And for that goal, we have two main strategies. One is top down and one, one is bottom up. Top down is we um, basically are engaging the assessment division to say, look, at the top of 2017, Detroit finally got its act together and reassessed all properties. We redid our study after that, found that things have gotten dramatically better, but the lowest valued homes are still being overassessed. And so we're working with the assessor to do some kind of across the board cut for those lowest valued homes. So that's a top down. The bottom up is no assessment division in America can get things 100% correct. It's just impossible. It's a mass assessment system. It's not house by house. So we have started two property tax appeal projects. One is housed at the University of Michigan. The other is housed at the Detroit Justice Center. And uh, we basically do the property tax appeals for poor homeowners for free. Because that's but the But they main. have to know that they can do that. They have to yeah. know that they can do that. But, the so we do two things. The, the difference between the two projects is that the Detroit Justice Center, they go to community meetings to get the word out. But the project at University of Michigan, we crunch the numbers beforehand, figure out who's being overassessed, and we send you a letter saying, we have wow. evidence saying you're overassessed. Come to us, we'll do your assessment for free. So we have wow. both things happening. So Love it. That's our first goal. We're going to stop these unconstitutional tax assessments. 
We have that top down and the bottom up strategy. The second goal is, uh, is, is compensation. You can't just illegal assess people and talk about some oops. We ain't you know, we're gonna deal with no oops. <laughs> we need some compensation. You know that reparations, right? Reparations. Yeah, we want some reparations. Yes. That's Charles episode number two. If you go with our library, you talk about reparations. Yes. We need some compensation. <laughs> right. And so Mary Sheffield has convened a task force, uh, a working group, to really explore if we were to do compensation, what would it look like? How could we make it viable for a city that is financial has financial strength? And so uh, we are all at the table trying in discussions at the moment under Mary Sheffield's uh, 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 leadership. Nice. The third and final goal is we need to have no more home. It's foolish that we're still foreclosing on homes, although we know about these unconstitutional tax assessments. So we need to stop foreclosing on homes until, well, until we find out that this home has not been subject to unconstitutional tax assessments. And if we cannot determine that, then we need to not foreclose on that particular Can home. Can I ask you a question? I agree. Go, go yeah. finish and I'll ask. Yeah, let me just tell you our main strategy for that final one is, number one, is we're getting behind the um, UCHC as a result of the, the lawsuit. Uh, we can talk about that in a minute, the first lawsuit. Uh, has something called the Make It Home program where they take people out of the tax foreclosure auction, right? Who qualified for the poverty tax exemption, meaning they were never supposed to be uh, uh, paying the taxes and getting evicted for right. in the first place. Um, and we'll talk more about that if you want to talk about the lawsuit next. Uh, the second thing we're doing is we're behind the Wayne County Land Bank uh, Quiet Title program. And I want, uh, this is important for listeners because the mayor and everybody's behind the pay as you stay. And I want everyone to understand the difference between the Wayne County Land Bank Quiet Title Program and Pay As You Stay. The Wayne County Quiet Title Program, for everybody who has any delinquency and you qualify for the poverty tax exemption, meaning you weren't supposed to be paying these taxes in the first place, they erase all of the taxes and you move on with your life. Pay As You Stay only doesn't erase the underlying tax, it just erases the penalties. Yeah, the interest. Yeah. The interest and penalties. Yeah. And so we're behind the more red, the Wayne County Land Bank because we've already acknowledged these people weren't supposed to be paying the taxes in the first place. So why are we making them pay the under, underlying tax, mm-hmm. right? So that's what the coalition is doing uh, for the um, making sure we have zero owner-occupied homes in the tax foreclosure is option is supporting the UCHC Make It Home program and supporting the Wayne County Land Bank uh, Quiet Title program. So those are our three goals. I'm just repeat them. Number one, stop unconstitutional assessments. Number two, fight for compensation for those who've been illegally assessed and foreclosed upon. And number three uh, is to make sure there are zero owner-occupied homes in the tax foreclosure auction. And once we accomplish those three goals, we plan to to uh, to go to the coalition will be over. People can do other work for them, other coalitions. We're not a coalition. That's, that's right. Around forever. That's right. Well, you're going to win this campaign and keep it moving. I love it. And I think that's great. I will say this, though. I think that the taxes, what is your new coalition name? The uh, Coalition for Property Tax Justice. For Property Tax Justice. Um, I think that there is a need for a companion piece, and that is a Coalition for Tax Justice. Um, The incentive to foreclose and the incentive 
to keep this program alive is partly tied to the fact that, um, as you pointed out, our county government might go into receivership if without these tax revenues. Is that still the case? No, no, that was just after 2008. They okay. were in trouble. Now they're, 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 I've been out of trouble for a So they're, they're, they're out of trouble. So what would the economic impact be on Wayne County if, um, if no more foreclosures? The, so again, the whole business with the economic impact on Wayne County, Wayne County had no business. So all this money goes into what's called the property tax revolving fund. Right. And in the, if you read the, the act of the property tax revolving fund, that's supposed to be a lockbox. You're that, that you're not supposed to be using that money to for the general to fund to cover. The general to, fund, to, yeah. I, I'm general not disagreeing fund. with that. Right. I'm not justifying what they've done in the past. Right. What I'm trying to get at is the fact that we have bad, put so a bad well, that's the answer to your question. You said what is the government, right. and I think that we've got to do something to address the starvation of our local government in terms of meeting the needs of citizens. Right. But that's the answer. Is that there? will be no effect on Wayne County, right? Okay. Because Wayne County is not supposed to be using this money to balance a budget. So if you remove this money, right, right. the I, point is they I would, get that. Right. I get that. And I understand that. I read somewhere, it was just a couple of years ago, that, they, that Wayne County was generating $18 million a year and that that was what was uh, making the, the, the book solvent. And I don't know if that's true or not true, um, I didn't investigate that, but it was not that long ago that that's what I read. While I think that's the wrong way to do it, I think that we have an underlying issue in our state and that is not enough revenue. We have too many tax increment finance projects, we have too many tax cuts that were given to large corporations, and then we have tax cuts that were given to businesses anyway, and so we're not able to replenish our tax base. And it's impacting low-income neighborhoods. It's impacting the city's and county's ability to take care of poor citizens. And so it's interesting to, and it's, it's so important that you fix this, which are, your work is just, you know, wow. It's amazing. The tax foreclosure crisis has to be the greatest injustice I've seen in Detroit. Absolutely. Other than mass incarceration. That's right. And, you know, some and, of the fines and fees. And let's say that, to be very clear about that, when you talk about civil rights abuses in America, some of the biggest civil rights abuses is in the criminal, you know, the uh, criminal justice system. Right. But in the area of housing, right. this property tax foreclosure right. crisis is the biggest civil rights abuse happening in America agree. in the area of housing. I, I end of the story. I agree, completely agree. Um, as we work in our neighborhoods, we're looking at the fact that you have so many people living in homes that can't afford to fix the roof, they can't afford to fix the porch. These are people who've paid their dues, paid their taxes, done everything they were supposed to do. They can't get a bank loan. Their home has not appreciated in value. And they're living in a lot of times in situations where we just had a horrible storm this weekend. And some people have sewage in their basements, again, and don't have the resources to clean it up. And so, you know, when I look at some of the other injustices that are, um, connected to housing injustice. It's not as unjust as having your whole house taken away from you. But when you live in an unsafe, unclean environment, there's another level of um, concern that I have. And so I'm just wondering if there's going to be a push to also look at just creating enough tax space to take care of our citizens. Because it, it feels like um, our government has become addicted in Ferguson 
fines and fees or paying the, the cost uh, of lost taxation and black people end up paying all these fines and fees, unless you begin to address these shortages, I wonder if it won't be some other way that the government kind of papers over its losses and its desire to reward wealthy people, if that makes any sense to you. Yeah, no, I mean, like we said already, you know, this absolutely has to do with tax cuts, reduced funding from the feds, reduced funding from the states, right? Uh, mm-hmm. So the, I just, there's no question about it. Yeah, so I think that we need to really fight for that. Yeah. Um, so, can you tell us a little bit about the lawsuit? What's the status on the lawsuit before yes. we close out? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um, uh, so there was a lawsuit brought by ACLU of Michigan, NAACP Legal Defense Fund, and the law firm of Covington and Burling, and it had two parts. The first part was against the city of Detroit for obstructive administration of the poverty tax exemption. Uh, and that's the whole thing with all this illegally assessed and all this foreclosure. 40% of Detroiters live below the poverty line. They're not line, even supposed to be right, paying, these, paying taxes these taxes in the first place. Yep. But I need you to understand there were certain policies in place that made getting the poverty tax exemption almost impossible. Laborious, yes. The one that I love to hate you know, is the fact that at one point you literally, and this is not even a joke, you needed to apply. To apply. To apply. You know what I mean? Like, you needed to apply in order to apply. Like, every every year. Forget the thing not being online. Or a notary. You literally or... needed to, you know, so it's just nonsensical policies that had no other purpose but to make it more difficult to, uh, get, the exemption. to, to, to get the exemption. Because the, the, the point when you had to apply to apply, what does that do? That means when you're at a, a mass community meeting, you can't hand the application out to all 500 and have them fill that out all at once. Because you need to apply, then they mail it to you, then you apply, right? That's the only function that that had was to prevent us from filling out 500 all at once. So the court comes in and says, no, 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 you must clean up that. So there was a settlement, and now the city of Detroit is cleaning up its act as far as the poverty tax administration. And that's what makes pay-as-you-say so insulting. Because pay-as-you-stay needs to acknowledge the fact that the city of Detroit itself was culpable in the fact that these people didn't apply for the poverty tax exemption. Kicking that down. All right. Second part of the lawsuit was against Wayne County. And that lawsuit was a Fair Housing Act law school for racially discriminatory property tax administration. That lawsuit never gets heard on its merits. Why? Judge Colombo at the state court says, "Uh uh-uh, this lawsuit should have been brought in the Michigan Tax Tribunal. It goes up to the appeals court, they agree with Colombo, and it was granted cert at the Michigan uh, Supreme Court. What does that mean? That now it has to be, by saying the case should not have been heard in state court, that it had to have been heard in the Michigan Tax Tribunal, that kills the case for three reasons. Number one, the Michigan Tax Tribunal statute of limitations is you have to get it in within 15 days. Oh, wow. Oh, Between wow. February 1st and February 15th for the assessor's review. Fair Housing Act has a two-year statute of limitations. The second reason is the Michigan Tax Tribunal is not a court. And so they have no injunctive power, meaning they can't tell the city to stop doing to X, do, yeah. which is what an injunction is. And that's what we're asking for. We need them to stop this. And the third and final is that because the Michigan Tax Tribunal is not a court, it has no uh, ability to do a class action. So you have to go one by one by one when the problem is systemic. 
So this procedural decision of the court saying it had to be tried, not in state court, but in the Michigan Tax Tribunal, effectively kills the case and prevents it from being heard on its merits. You just, all of the evidence about these unconstitutional tax assessments is incontrovertible. Mm -hmm. And that never got put before a judge on the substance because of this procedural, uh, uh, because of these procedural challenges. And I always love, I'm a law professor, and I love to you know, tell this to my first year law students who come to law school thinking the law, you know, if there's illegality, let's just sue. You know, it's naivete. The law will take care of it. No, the law is limited. And even when something is so clearly illegal, the law sometimes can't even fix that. Mm. Mm. And I think it's an important lesson, not only for first year law students, but society at large, who needs to realize law is limited. So how can our listeners get involved in this work? I want to, I really want to make sure that we get uh, the information for uh, yes. the new name. I can't think of the new name again. The, but uh, Coalition, the Coalition for Property for Tax Justice. Property Tax Justice. Yes. How can our listeners get involved? They can go to our website at illegalforeclosures, plural, one word, dot O-R-G. So illegalforeclosures, dot O-R-G. And if you go to our website, we have a, um, a really good uh, three-minute animated uh, video that gives the basics of the injustice happening. We have a what can you do where there's lots of actions to take uh, that's listed on the website. The website is a place to go when we're doing an action. The next one will be listed on the website. So really, if you want to involve, get involved in our work, the ground zero, the first step is really taking a close look and reading all the information on the website. All of these studies I've just described to you are all available on the website if you're interested in reading more of your got some nerdy listeners who want to read the original source material, hit the Sweet. website, get those articles. And what about our listeners who want to follow you? Because you you know, you're so dynamic. Are you on the socials? I am Okay, oh, give us your socials. Well I'm at, wanna... I'm barely on Twitter. I tweet like once a month. Oh god. <laughs> I know I'm an old lady. You so young, Orlando. I'm just like, mm. so yeah, I tweet once a month. It's a mess. It's a mess. You email me. Okay. Okay. Um, so I have a question. Have you ever not even on talked to have you ever talked Sheesh. to any candidates who are running for office and asked them where they stand on this? No, just because you know the work we do, we have to stay away from politicians. Well, you know, we don't have to stay away from policy. Right. Okay, it's, uh, we don't have to stay away from policy. And as a nonprofit, even if you are, um, you know, a 501c3, if your work, if you're advocating policy that is very closely connected to your nonprofit mission, you can advocate right. for that. Which we do. So what? all of those three goals I told you, uh, we're trying to get policies changed, and so we definitely interact on right. that. Right, and I'm just saying that it seems to me as a one of the things, this is a big election year, right? This year and next year are big for our city and our state. And I think it's important that we begin asking people, where do you stand? If this is the biggest civil rights action or civil rights issue around housing right now in our nation, and it certainly feels that way, and it's affected the property rights even of people who haven't lost their homes. Because now you're living next to a vacant, and that's impacting the value of your property, and it's degrading wealth in our neighborhoods. So um, it's really, really important. It seems to me as though some candidate forums and some questionnaires, we really ask them to stand up and talk about how they would end this would be one way of trying to ensure that there are people who are representing us and understanding the issues. And I really want to 
um, have some type of community development candidate form that begins to just ask some questions. We're not telling people how to vote. We're just telling you where people stand and giving them an opportunity to stand up and say, I'm for uh, property tax justice. I think that's a great idea. So we'll be back. I know you're leaving here for a while. Um, I'll be back and forth, but yeah, I have to. Uh, I owe my University of Chicago a semester, so uh, I'll be back and forth. But I, the good news, which is my new news, another breaking news, is I just got funding to be able to stay in Detroit. So from May 2020 until May 2022, so for the next two years, I will be in Detroit full time. Oh, can't wait. Right. Okay, so, so we're going to be so working I'm with you. I'm looking forward to, to partnering <laughs> with you, to educating. The community. Now, how many people, how many organizations are members of you said the 12, 12, right? 12? And 12. all organizations, if you go to our website at the bottom, it shows each and every one. What we're hoping to do is also to make sure that that number is 13 before the month is out. Yes. And Eastside Energy <laughs> Network right. joins your yes, coalition. Yes, Thank you yes, so yes. much for your um, just scholarship, for your hard work and your passion around this issue and representing people who don't get represented often enough. Yeah. It's a pleasure to meet you. It's such a pleasure to meet you. Tell Aaron Stanley we said hello. Yes, he's a connector. Yeah, if you... Go ahead. Thank you for having me on the show. This is always wonderful to have an opportunity to talk to different populations about this really important issue. So thank you for having me. Thank you. And if you have topics that you want discussed on Authentically Detroit, you can hit us up on our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at AuthenticallyDetroit or email us at AuthenticallyDetroit.com. All right, it's time for shout outs. Donnie, you got any shout outs this week? <laughs> I do. Okay. I want to shout out um, Detroit City Council in advance <laughs> because um, I believe that um, from what I've read, all the tea leaves tell me that um, <laughs> Council President Brenda Jones is ready to try to come up with some fixes for um, the $600 million in over-assessment. And I'm really excited about that. I think that um, we can all agree that we wish that city council may have been a little bit more active and conscious and acting on, on behalf of citizens um, for some time now as some of these things have progressed. But, you know, no, there's no time like the present. And um, I'm excited to see that we're going to have two branches of government in the city really working together to solve problems. Um, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Um, I want to shout out Reveal, and um, Reveal actually assisted the Detroit News in accessing some of the data, I believe, that um, they could not access easily because of the Freedom of Information mm -hmm. Act. The way it's being applied in local offices and I guess across the nation is people say, yeah, you can have the information if you are if you can pay me two hundred and thirty-five thousand yeah. dollars, and so um, you know what? What does that say about a democracy? Pay to play, mm -hmm. pay to know. Um, but hey, reveal helped to level the playing field and say, let's just put this information out there. Um, I want to shout out Nancy Kaffer because she is really awesome, and she wrote a great story about the water shutoffs, and she really talked not just about the impact on individuals, but the impact on public health. That's right. That when people are not clean. Um, communicable disease has a way of spreading. Whenever if people talk about stopping the flu, they say, wash your hands. Right. Um, stopping the cold, wash your hands. When you cannot wash, it impacts everybody as well as the individual and their quality of life. Yeah. Uh, shout out to Christine McDonald for her magnificent reporting 
um, in the Detroit news story. That's Pulitzer material there. Mm, you know what I mean? So um, excited uh, for her future. And I'm excited that we'll get to see her this Wednesday night um, at Tech Town. Shout out to Candace Fortman and Sil- Sarah Alvarez at Outlier Media, who's helping to sponsor this event. That's really going to dig deeper into uh, the data that was collected uh, by the Detroit News Outlier and Candace and Sarah, they're doing a magnificent job and they've worked uh, with Christine to help pull together that article. Uh, also, uh, on January 22nd, uh, myself and Yodit Mesfin Johnson will be doing a talkback about our German Marshall Fellowship experience at COACT at 6 o'clock. Uh, moderated by Kirk Mays of Forgotten Harvest and our friend uh, Marlo Stoudemire. So uh, come on now. Authentically Detroit's name is on that. So we're happy to be uh, a partner in that. Um, And if we don't have any more shout outs, we thank you for listening. Catch the wave.